Hello, and welcome to An Aromatic Life. Can you believe we're coming to the end of the year? I know, it's crazy. I've been reflecting on the conversations I've had on this podcast this year, and wow, so many great discussions related to the beautiful sense of smell. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know I like to gather snippets of some of my favorite moments with my guests from the year. They always give me a lot to think about in terms of the different ways our sense of smell can have an impact on our life. I think you'll really enjoy this episode. But before we get started, I did want to take just a minute to personally thank you for listening to the podcast. I know you have a lot of choices when it comes to how you spend your time. And the fact that you choose to be here with me and my guests for just a little bit of your day means so much. Please know that. And if you've already rated the podcast, thank you. If you haven't but want to, I would be so grateful. It allows others to find the show, too. At any rate, Happy New Year. I wish you all the best for 2024. I'll be back in January, and I can't wait to share new and interesting episodes about all things smell. For now, enjoy a compilation of the best of 2023. This is An Aromatic Life, the podcast that aims to shed light on our beautiful sense of smell and increase its profile in a culture dominated by sight and sound. My name is Frau Gagalia. I'm a certified aromatherapist and smell coach who spent over 20 years in and around the fragrance industry. What I know for sure after all these years is that our sense of smell is powerful, yet is so underappreciated. There's so much we can do to harness our sense of smell to be well. So join me as I explore this mesmerizing sense from all different angles and learn what it can do for you. Enjoy the show. All right, so I thought we could begin with the most popular episode of the year, episode 80, with my friend, master perfumer, Christoph Lottamiel. Here he explains how he uses naturals and synthetics in his creations. He begins with naturals. So there is a certain complexity. There is a, there are facets, even just pure straight facets that you don't get with synthetics. Um, and then there is the poesy, the poetry. So I have to say, yes, often I put the natural because I know it's going to help some um, farmers somewhere and some factories somewhere. Because if you visit a natural factory, the smells in there, oh, it's incredible. Oh, it must be it's so crazy. great. <laughs> When you put your head in a vat of narcissus or a vat of violet leaves or a vat of, of oh. anything, hay or it's crazy. And so you're like, oh, I want to help the people that are making this. And then also the farmers. And so, yes, I do create. It's not just for the creation or not just for the smell. When you create, but it's the same everywhere. You have people in the kitchen is the same. Uh, ask a chef if they put that just for the taste also because they want to help the farmers or because it's kind of the inspiration too uh, is helping the farmers. It's it, the ingredient comes with the whole story with it, but the story uh, influences your your psyche and the way and the way you perceive. Then the final product. If I don't tell you it's from uh, Madagascar, and then I tell you, ah, but in there I have a lot of stuff from Madagascar. Like, oh, then you see it a different way. It's normal. It's an art. Uh, you know, perfumery is useless, and it's an art. So it's like music. It's useless. I love to say that. And we are materialistic. Music is electronic and um, and uh, can be digital and visual can also be digital. And perfumery, 
Uh, I love to say we are materialistic. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So, but uh, yeah, so it's fantastic. But the perception um, is very important. So I use it for that as well. Well, uh, just, and I have to say, so me, I would not like to be um, only using naturals. It's a okay. very different um, style. Okay. It's like in architecture. If you say, I only want to build houses with wood and stones. Yes. I only yeah. use wood and stones. And uh, not even bricks, huh? not even bricks. So wood and stones. And uh, voila, you, you are stuck with certain styles, but that can be your love and you can do only yeah. that. Yeah. Or, uh, I'm in Japan here. They do uh, rice straw and wood. Well, rice straw, wood. They do a whole house without one nail, and then uh, and 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 ropes. Okay. So then you have a certain style. But if you like to do a lot of different styles, a lot of different projects, a lot of different things, then you're limited. Uh, uh, you you you're limited, and you're even more limited than architecture because with wood and stone you can build a structure. Yeah. And with a lot, that's a problem. With a lot of natural ingredients, you cannot build a structure because they evaporate in five seconds or in, uh, in less than an hour. So you are also limited physically with... Yeah, we didn't uh, talk about that, the, the longevity that a lot of people look for, yeah. right? In a fragrance. So there's longevity. There is uh, blooming in the water for the shampoo, longevity yeah. in skin, longevity in the laundry detergent. Then yeah. do you want to buy your Tide or your uh, Ariel for uh, $20 the box instead of $4.99 the box? Uh, you have to <laughs> think about that. For some people, it's just not realistic. And sometimes it's not the story. You just want to make your laundry that it smells nice. And, you know, it's just, well, uh, these are considerations like that. Uh, and these are huge volumes. And I want people to know that if you decide to put some sometimes and you decide to put 1% of a natural ingredient or even a synthetic in Ariel or in Tide, you, have, you are doubling the world production of that ingredient overnight. Wow. The volumes are so huge and the volume in perfumery are so small and fine fragrance, the volumes are tiny compared to uh, laundry volumes. Uh, or fabric softeners, shampoos. These are huge volumes. And uh, so that's also a thing to think. People, <laughs> when you're in laundry, people are like, why did you put yourself again in there? Because they know they freak out all yeah. of a sudden and no one knows, no one can predict. If you, if tomorrow you put, I don't know, 1% cardamom, uh, I didn't know I would use that the day before. So you cannot wait the next harvest. So this is a, Big management problem, whether it's synthetic or natural, by the way, huh? but natural even more because you have to wait for the harvest. That's right. So uh, you cannot just make more in the lab uh, within a month. Uh, you have to wait for the next year. Or you have to plant more. So some, there are projects like that where you say, okay, no, this year we can put that only in one shampoo at a time. Next, let's listen to episode 79, where Alex Wilchko explains how digitizing smells will allow us to experience a multitude of new, beautiful scents in the future, just like we have for color today. There's certain kinds of perceptual experiences that are really hard to construct without naturals. They, you know, if, if the synthetics and a perfume kind of create the skeleton of the experience, you can trape it and really clothed in really sumptuous robes like when that. you start to add a little bit of the natural, like natural sandalwood, natural ambergris. I mean, sometimes yeah. some of these things we can't possibly use at industrial scale because they're too rare or regulated or too expensive. 
but like really good citrus, really good essential oils from, you know, uh, this or that flower you might choose yeah. or, um, you know, certain, some of the woods that can create an incredible depth in a fragrance. It's, it's, it's hard to replicate those things. I think that we all deserve to experience those things, right? Much in the same way that we don't really think about experiencing any color we possibly want to see. If we <laughs> yeah. go back in time, okay. purple and red were ridiculously expensive colors. Really? Right? Okay. The processes by which you achieved that royal purple or crimson red were so expensive that if you, in some countries, in some periods of time, if you wore that color, it was illegal because it was a direct indicator of royalty, right? Mm -hmm. Tyrian purple is, is smashed up snails basically. And they put through a very complicated mm -hmm. extraction process, but you, it's a lot of work to get even a drop of that stuff. And same for the crimson red. There was this little bug called cochineal that was found in Oaxaca and uh, was being farmed in that area by folks uh, who were there. And then the Spanish moved in effectively and said, Hey, we really like this color. <laughs> and then that's how it came to Europe. Before that, there were other colors that had that quality, but uh, had that rough color, but not the quality and fastness of cochineal. But now we don't think about that, right? Because synthetic chemistry in the middle of the 1800s produced an enormous number of dyes, the aniline dyes, starting from, from coal tar as the, uh, the starting place. And it covered every color. And now we've got 9,000 or so dyes and pigments that give us whatever we want. And there's just not this notion that like some colors are more rare than others, we just can have whatever we want right? Uh, at a price which doesn't make us think, right? It is pervasive and we're better for it. We're more enriched for it. Our lives are more beautiful for it. That has not happened in fragrance. Right. There are some smells that either you can't have at an economical price or in an ethical way or at all. And I think that that should change. I think it will change. It's hard. It's not yeah. easy. Success is not guaranteed, but to me, that's the clarion call here. That's the thing that we need to heed and to answer is, look, there's just really beautiful smells out there and more people should smell them. Of course, translating smells, which are invisible, into something tangible that we can understand. It's not so easy. Here in episode 78, my guest, Luciano Vera, explains how challenging it is for us to translate invisible smells into tangible words with real meaning. In general, I think that the human beings love to make everything visible. Yeah. So, yeah. and then this, this is, we, I think that sometimes that we feel some kind of frustration when we try to describe odors. Yeah, because we use words, which is okay, and, uh, a little bit romantic, but we always try to think of some material object to refer to, to the smell. When we try to transmit our other experience, we use words for describing it. And yeah. most of them are words referring to visual objects, I, I told you, especially yeah. objects with consolidated sensory characteristics. Yeah. For example, uh, orange. Yeah. The orange has a consolidated image and a very characteristic odor. Then the, the orange, orange is a good resource for sensory semantics. Yeah? Okay. Uh, so we can smell the air gray tea, for example, and right. we can use the description, yeah, this is orange-like smell. This other, generic, other yeah. odors, no? We can, we can say, oh, it smells like grass, like, no, like wood, but orange-like smell. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. 
But for example, other, another example could be maybe coconut. Yeah, coconut is also is a good semantic resource. We can use also the expression coconut-like smell for describing many smells in food, perfumes, or nature, etc. And what about metal? Metal is another good resource. Mm -hmm. So we have, I, I mentioned orange, mentioned coconut and metal. However, how does the orange smell? How does the coconut smell? How does metal smell? So if you think about that, you can find something, but it's not easy to describe the metal odor. Sure, yeah. So, and then, so do we have a additional visual object for describing the orange no, or metal or coconut odor? That's weird. Uh, we learned that the orange fruit smells like orange. We right. learned that the coconut smells like coconut and the metal smells like metal. Right. And we have accepted them in our older vocabulary. Yeah. In the case of chocolate, chocolate, for example, we all agree that it can be used also like an odor descriptor for describing other smells. But can we describe the chocolate odor? Yeah, this is, looks more possible. It's, oh yeah, for example, chocolate, but maybe you can help me. Toasted, cocoa, of course, yeah. earthy, it can be sweet, yeah, it can be sweet, sweet. exactly, yeah. It is, it is this, I call the other vocabulary, vocabulary paradox, yeah? Yeah. So think about the following question. Is a smell worth of thousand words or is a word worth a thousand smell? <laughs> I like that. Yeah? Yeah. Because, it, yeah. for example, the chemical odor called ethanol, maybe you know that yes, uh, yes. pure compound, is very complex to describe with, with words. Yeah? Despite, uh, despite this is a common chemical substance, we smell it everywhere. That is because we don't find the ethanol pure in the nature. Right. It's a part yeah. of other odors, right? Exactly. It's, like, it's, like, it's a part of the composition of other odors. And literature, for example, you can find I, I, I'm sure that you can find more than 10 words for describing it, for describing the ethanol. Wow. With unrelated conceptual words like fish, citrus, fat, or even cold store. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and then words as other descriptors are sometimes for me a paradox. Aside from simply using language to bring meaning to smells, what if we had technology that could truly analyze our environment, the air that we breathe, and help us monitor pollution, allergens, and toxins, especially in underserved communities? Here in episode 81, Erica Parker and Pulkit Jan of the Aroma Project explain the potential. In an architectural world, um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, um, you know, structural integrity, there's always the environment or, you know, surrounding environment and context of your environment. Um, how can something like this fit into cities and fabrics and urban spaces? Um, and so then on the technology side with our team, we do a lot of like product heavy work where we're designing actual digital experiences, looking at things from 
that inventor lens, which I like to say, um, and actually like what, what could be the future of this product. And so this is kind of a blending of those two worlds where, um, you know, there's something physical in the environment that you can touch, that you can see that's physically reaching for these pathogens that might not be, um, you know, a vi visible to the human eye, but and then, not. yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, there's some germs we can see. <laughs> well, that's true. And some pollution we but, can see. You're right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but then, you know, the really harmful stuff that can be potentially cancerous or super, you know, harmful, um, you know, being able to actually physically see a structure reaching out to grab that information and then pull it back in to analyze and create this data, um, you know, that will potentially help solve these problems. And that was another part of the use case is that we're not you know, creating a structure that can solve environmental, you know, pollution, but more so analyze it, which was a huge part of the project was, you know, how can we create um, public data that helps stir change and, and create change um, rather than just, you know, we created a product and it fixes everything and it's perfect. That's not, you know, that's not like real world, um, right. how the real world works. So yeah. we wanted to do something that was a little bit more realistic and create an object that, you know, is in space, it's physical, you see it, um, people can react to it, they understand that it's collecting information, it can do something. And then the data that gets put out from that object will then inform environmental change and policies, um, you know, that govern the world we live in, basically, um, to help make those movements. Yeah, and to tie back to the incident uh, in East Palestine, I think, uh, one of the important things there is like when we envisioned this, we were we envisioned this in New Orleans because that's Cancer Alley, yes. uh, and there's a lot of problems there. Uh, uh, and and uh, as you can see, right, like we have the the stuff going on in East Palestine, and uh, it'll take a quite a long time before we'll know for sure what's going there on there, what kind of chemicals people are expo exposed to. And even though we have the we have uh, people from the scientific community going there to test the water, to test the air, the people who live there have no idea what they're exposed to right now, right? Yeah. And if if we have something like what we envisioned here, we they would be able to know in real time that there's this leak that the environment is not uh, safe to live here, and they would be able to get that information directly in real time instead of having to rely on people coming there, testing and doing everything. And then uh, uh, all of that time, they're still getting exposed, right? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Let's switch gears and revisit some of the introspective conversations I had with some pretty amazing women. Let's begin with episode 85, where Stephanie Bird shares what an important role trees play in her life. When I was growing up, they were a place, it was a solace for me. Um, it was a lot of like chaos going on around me and I could go into a particular tree I believe it was an elm tree. 
and just rest in the arms of the tree and uh, was just so calming and beautiful. And I would fall asleep there. Oh, I love climbing trees as a youth. And if there are no trees, I, I really, I can't live in the place. <laughs> I, I tried it. <laughs> Didn't work for you? <laughs> no. Um, my chief complaints I wrote in my memoir about that place. I was like, there were no trees and too much concrete. I couldn't stay there. So, Yeah. yeah. There might be some people listening who do live in what we call the concrete jungle yeah, <laughs> or, con or surrounded by concrete. But Definitely. yeah, but I think there's, there's always a tree to find. They might not be majestic. And grow yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can grow them in home, the, the lemon trees and um, all of the different kinds of citrus and things like that. Banana. So yeah, there's yeah. always some, there's always a place to, to put a tree and, and, and start. Yeah. And, and cultivate it and I remember yeah. back in the day and you know I grew up in suburb of Chicago myself and back in the early you know the late 70s early 80s okay I'm dating myself <laughs> um, we had Arbor Day and everybody received a little tree and we planted yeah. ours in our in our home outside so it was just mm -hmm. this tiny little plant and it's grown to become this big tree now i've gone to visit my old home i don't we don't own it anymore but i've i've gone by there and i see this big tree and i'm like wow i planted that and that was back in oh, the day no. yeah what a of, um, it's rewarding and a sense of accomplishment and i'm um, sharing with the earth it sounds really mm -hmm. lovely they don't do that anymore now but i wish they would yeah Mm -hmm. Like where I live, there is a Department of Forestry, which I'm very impressed that they have that and um, have a lot of um, preserves and, and things where you can go. And so that's the thing. If you're really feeling ur in an urban environment, you can always go to those places. Yeah. And I guess some states have them more than others, but everywhere has them. Then, of course, there's the inspiring Audra James, who in episode 82 shares how Blooming Late has served her well and allowed her to create a fulfilling aromatic career. So it's that thing, I think, sometimes when you do something a bit later in life, you can bring that experience of what you were once doing into it. And that's what sets you apart and gives you that edge, I think, sometimes over other people. Yeah. So, um so yeah, it's been a wonderful 30 years. And I I, I think I read a quote by Micheline RCA who did say in her 70s that she felt she was only just beginning. Interesting. And I'm 67 now and I, I feel exactly the same. I feel like I'm, you know, that there, there's just so, so much more to learn and you can spend such a lot of time researching and learning what you do. So I, you know, I do encourage anyone who's thinking about it to, you know, take that step. Yeah, yeah. I think your journey just actually, in a strange way, as you're telling the story, it reminds me of, of a scent. You know how scents just kind of, they come in and they, right. they lure yes. you in certain directions. It's almost, it's, it's very fluid. It's very intuitive. It's very... Um, instinctive and and I don't know it just draws you in and I, I think you right. you took a chance each step that you took and you yeah kind of, I mean yeah I, I did rely a lot on I think 
gut feeling and intuition. I did yeah. go with that. Um, and I've, I've learned that it does work, you know, when you, when you do that. And I, and I still use that in my work and I even use it with clients, you know, um, mm. treating them, you know, sometimes they'll want to see you for something, but you get a gut feeling that there's something else going on. So it has been a big part of my life, I think. Mm. Um, but yeah, it has, it's been an interesting journey because when I started out, I didn't know how it was going to go. I didn't know. I didn't think I'd be here 30 years later still doing it. My my goal was to do something that I really felt passionate about and that I could help other people with. And at the same time, try and create a life work balance as a single mother, mm. because working in the corporate world long term just wasn't wasn't going to happen. I needed to do something on my own. But I, I really enjoyed being able to do my own thing and to change course a bit if I felt that I wanted to or go in a different direction. I think one of the things with aromatherapy, and I guess you'll agree with this though, there's so many options yes. and that can sometimes be difficult for people to focus on one or to, you know, stay the course on one because there, there are just so many areas and they're all as interesting as each other. Yeah. And I think we're starting to see, like like I said, with your podcast, a whole new world open up of people yeah. really starting to think about how they can utilize aromas in so many areas of their life and work yeah. and business. And yeah. yeah. And who can forget the beautiful conversation with Yuliana Karayeva? who in episode 77 shares her process for translating smells into musical notes. Here she uses the example of lemon. First word is how I smell essential oil, and the second word how I smell lemon peel. They are different. They're the same key, let's say it's C major, but surprisingly, essential oil sounds higher. Yes, goes more concentrated. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And the peel, and it's very interesting to compare. There is such a big difference. All right, let's listen. about that so as i played the first chord was to discover how lemon essential oil sounds i first said uh, essential oil then when i wanted to continue my journey with this smell uh, i found out i forgot my essential oil and i was at work so i, <laughs> I went to supermarket and i bought a lemon to oh. my surprise they sound differently they sound in the same key, C major, if anybody knows what it means, the same key, but essential oil sounded higher because it's more concentrated, right? 
and the lemon sounds more neutral more calm a little bit lower you can feel it when you sense the chords yep yeah when you scratch the po as i'm doing right now it's definitely lower you're right you're right yes it's not as shouting as the essential oil and the music came to me very quickly spontaneously it was such a jumpy and fun melody but with a strong yeah but with a strong chord and core in it and it went around because i feel like lemon the scent of lemon jumps around as well it's it's like like, sparkles yeah yes it's sparkles like like it sparkles yes but it's not as high as orange let's say if i compare it's a little bit lower orange is even more higher register yeah i mean that could be a fun exercise which we won't do here but you could just compare you know lemon lime yes i have orange on my instagram Oh, good. Everybody go to Olfactory Sound. You can do orange there. And listen Compare to, it to this. Yeah. Perfect. I love that. So that's what you do. You basically, you smell it first and then it, and and you rationally think about what it smells like. Those are the chords that you played um, first. And then you go to the emotional space afterwards. I hear them. Whenever I smell an oil, I can hear the chord. I just need to come because I don't have a perfect pitch, right? I not uh, granted with perfect pitch. I cannot say the names of the notes, what I hear. I come to the piano and find those notes, but they sound in my mind. Whenever I smell anything, it sounds. Okay. It's not something that uh, that bothering me daily because I can kind of say, okay, so you can sound, you are not bothering me because the whole world sounds for me. It's okay. I got used to it yeah, <laughs> because right. of the amount of music I'm exposed to, right? So it's not something that you suddenly I hear and it's annoying me. It doesn't annoy me. Okay. But if I focus, let's say on lemon, I hear the chord i just need to come to the piano and play this chord the rest is just my creation my composing skills that i'm recently developing right thanks to the oils then there are those moments when a guest scent descriptions are so good you feel like you've been transported there that's how i felt when i spoke to anjali vandemark in episode 93 Here she describes the smell of her hometown Nagpur in India and shares two of her favorite scent memories growing up there. So Nagpur is a very hot, dry environment. It's something I say is in summers, sometimes the temperatures go up to, you know, 117 degrees Fahrenheit. So the summers are really hot. And from there, I've come to, you know, a country where at least the latitude of 47 degrees north. And so I say that I am from a 47 degrees Celsius place and I've managed to come to 47 (laughs) degree north, you know, so it's like a complete change. So for me, that scent of Nagpur is the color brown because I associate it with the dry, dusty jungles that surround Nagpur. The smell of dust, the smell of dry leaves, that is Nagpur. When the monsoons arrive, and this might be, you know, not just the city, in multiple places in India, 
But when the monsoons arrive, they arrive in a grand display of thunder. I mean, you're waiting all summer for rain and then it suddenly comes. So the first rain, it's in my family, it was a tradition that me and my father and my brother, my mom, first rain, you have to get drenched. So you step out of the house and whenever, wherever it rains, doesn't matter which, you know, whether you're working or not, you've got to get drenched. So that first smell of rain is also very Nagpur. And in, again, in winter, we have, we light fires around, bonfires for a particular festival. So even that, so different seasons have a different smell. But essentially, Nagpur to me is very cedar wood, very vetiver, very brown and dry. And so I, I love the this palette of uh, perfume. Do you have any early scent memories from childhood of being there? I mean, except mm-hmm. for these general, you know, you were just mm-hmm. describing the city for me, but any personal scent memories that? Oh, yeah, there? absolutely. Quite a few. But there are two memories that are very close to me that are one of my favorites. And one of them is sandalwood, of course. You know, I come from sandalwood country, as I like to say. My grandmother had a small block of Mysore sandalwood. And for certain ceremonies, we used to grind that Mysore sandalwood block on a special stone. So that stone was meant only for this purpose and you would take it out like once in a year. And so the job of grinding the sandalwood into a little paste was mine. And uh, I would put a little little drops of water on the stone and grind the sandalwood. And my fingers would stay perfumed for a very long time. And so for me, that smell of the aroma of sandalwood, the divineness, and it's very different. The, the scent profile of the wood is different from the essential oil of sandalwood that you get to sense. There is the essential oil definitely does have a personality that comes from the wood, but oof, the wood is something else or itself. And to experience that, to hold it in your hand. And the best part about it is that sandalwood, as it ages, it becomes even mellower and more beautiful. So that is a memory that, like sandalwood, has grown with me and still has become deeper, you know. So that's one of my absolute favorite memories. And first memories, I would say, when I think of my childhood, that is something I associate with. Yeah. And the other is mango tree. So... (laughs) I love mangoes. And I love the Indian mangoes that you can actually get here in California sometimes. (laughs) That's true. So there is a particular day in the year when we use the mango leaves and we make a garland of them and put it up on the doorstep above the door in front of the house as a welcoming sign. So it's the first day of the lunar year. So the job when I was growing up as a kid, the job of plucking all of those leaves was mine. So I would scamper up the tree, sit on the branches, throw the leaves down. But that memory of being high up in the air, looking at the world below, the scent of the green leaves of the mango, which have a touch of the raw mango skin, it is so different. That greenness, that freedom. To me, that greenness of mango represents freedom. 
because I was such a small kid, I would jump anywhere, go anywhere. You know, I didn't have bones of flesh. I don't know. I was just flying, I guess. <laughs> you know, after a certain <laughs> age, you realize, oh my God, I have this, I have bones, you know, they hurt. <laughs> right, right. They hurt now. Yeah. But yeah, so it's very interesting that certain memories have certain uh, connotations. So for me, mango leaf is freedom. Being very free, carefree, light, and above the world. So those are my two very strong memories from childhood. Now, something near and dear to my heart is getting children to connect more with smelling. So I was delighted to speak with nine-year-old Xavier and his Aunt Emily in episode 90 and learn about their sniffaris. I think a sniffari is basically we kind of go on like an adventure because when my aunt was here, I skipped a school day so we could go on a safari. We won't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I think those are the best days to skip when you're out smelling. So I fully back you. So you and just we, go out. When we go out, we kind of go to like interesting places that have uh, interesting smells. For example, two places was Kind of near a movie theater, there was a row of flowers, like, when you turn. Uh -huh. so, and then one of those flowers smelled like a soda or something. Do you remember that, Emmy? You remember what some of them smelled like? They were poppies. Yeah. So Because it was on, on a kind of busy street, so it was, but there was also the interference of car smell, yes, <laughs> too. Yes. And one of the ones that you smelled, Xavier, was a mallow, and you said, oh, that does not smell good. <laughs> Right. at all and it didn't it didn't it had that kind of icky musky sort of smell a flower that did not smell good <laughs> yeah they don't all smell good right all no, the flowers. no. Yeah. but we stopped and smelled lots of flowers and we smelled the different colors too because i've noticed i have four rose bushes and they each smell different they're the same variety but they each smell different the red smells different from the pink smells different from the yellow and, and then there's tea roses and they smell not so much but they're the ones that i have and so then i started to smell the different colors you know as well and so there were some xavier i don't remember what all of them smelled but there was one that you said it smelled a pool you thought it had kind of a chlorine ish sort of smell and there were some that I smelled and thought, oh, I think this has some methyl deantelis in it. Because I can smell it's kind of like a smoky, creamy corn almost smell to it. So that's a lot of weird things going on in a flower if you are using your perfumer's nose. But The um, fact that you did that just on the side of a road, you don't have to go to a fancy garden. or No. No. I mean, that's the whole point. There's so much to explore just around you, right? Yeah, for sure. There's thousands and millions of fragrant molecules around us at all times yes there's so much to just smell in your kitchen or on your dinner plate or wherever and then if the temperature changes the wind direction changes at any given moment things change in the air so yeah. what you smelled yeah. one minute changes the next minute right xavier would you agree has that been yeah. your experience too yeah, temperature is always changing. Let's say if I go to that same flower spot and I go tomorrow and the same spot and the boat isn't busy, I'm going to say these flowers smell different. Yeah, exactly. Because it's the entire experience. It's not just the flower. It's the car exhaust. It's the smog, the sky, just all kinds of different variables. In some places it might have rained. <laughs> you know, it just yeah. depends on 
what the situation is. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. so great. The phase of growth that the flower is in. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a good point. Whether it's a budding or it's ending dying, it smells different at all points in a vase compared to outside. You can do that comparison. Exactly. I love the color one though, because that's a really fun one to do too. You can kind of say today I'm going to smell, I don't know, all things that are green. Mm -hmm. Anything I come across that's green, that would be kind of interesting to smell. See if there's any commonality between all green things. Yeah. All blue sure. things. <laughs> right. Stick yeah. your nose in your produce drawer and yeah. see the green, what the broccoli smells like compared to the bell peppers, compared to the jalapeno peppers or something. Yeah. And then the cucumbers and then yeah, exactly. it goes on and on. There's a lot of green stuff. And then go outside and, you know, smell the grass that goes with the produce. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. Now, does a well, cactus have a smell? Have you ever tried to, without getting too close and hurting yourself? <laughs> but exactly, uh, they're kind of. Nope. <laughs> yeah, that'd be interesting to try to smell at at a, at a safe distance. Of <laughs> course, you've smelled though. You can smell the flowers on a cactus. Yeah. So it kind of smells fruity. Oh, that's good to know. Okay. And then some flowers don't have smells. That's always disappointing, but not every flower has a smell. That's not yeah. how it, they attract their insects or bugs, right? Mm -hmm. And it's funny how we say something smells bad. We might not like the smell of a flower, but that insect that comes and pollinates from that, they might be like, this is perfect for me. I really like this, right? Yeah. And as a matter of fact, maybe the flower saying, I don't want to attract the humans. I want to attract the bees, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So somebody loves that mallow out there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There's a reason it's emitting that kind of fragrance because it's, yeah. it's trying to attract somebody. Anything else you want to say about the Snafari? I think it's the most fun and it's something that you, it doesn't cost a thing, you know, that you can do with your kid. You're just walking around wherever you live. You don't have to live in the country or, you know, it's anywhere smells are all around us. And so there's always something that you can smell. So that just makes it really, I think, extra fun. And, you know, take a little longer outside or whatever you're doing and just enjoy, you know, literally take time to smell the roses. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> smell the roses. So I think that's just something special that Xavier and I get to do that is more his interest than his other cousins. And probably he and I get to spend the most time, most often of all of my nieces and nephews. So it's just, it's something special that we get to do together. And you know how it's always cool to watch kids, what they learn and then the light goes on, you know, and so. And you're probably learning from him too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. That's what I would think. Because they have no filters, just whatever comes to mind. And, and, That's exactly and, right. like, and you're like, I didn't even think of that. I, I have all these preconceived notions already about what, what it is. But yeah, that's yeah, what I think sure. is nice too, that they have new ways of looking at the world. And I yeah. love that. This year, I also tried to explore food and drink a little more. Here in episode 84, Eddie Sasson takes me through the coffee roasting process which interestingly relies heavily on your nose. For me, in my experience, I've stuck to the old ways, which is pretty much get it through these changes, get it through these stages, and then 
once you get the first crack, you start to use your nose and your sight to see the color change. You see also the smell change, and you're looking for what I like to kind of get into the sugary, brown sugary smells and things that change in your nose. So when you're smelling it all the way through the process, you're smelling those changes, which we talked about earlier, which are the grass phase, so it smells like wet grass. That's the first phase, would you say? Kind of pretty much, the first smell change phase. Okay. This green smell of just what, it's kind of like a very non-distinct green yeah. coffee smell. It goes into this grassy, real wet, grassy smell. Then it goes into this hay smell, like it's this hay. And then it gets out of the hay phase and it gets into this bread phase. It starts to smell all of a sudden like you're cooking bread or cookies or yeasty. something like that. Uh, not even yeasty, more like bread or cookies. Okay. Like really like a smell like you're in baking something in the oven. Not so much yeasty, but like, because yeasty is more, to me, is more pre-cooked. Okay. Smelling right, a little right, bit more right. pre-cooked. More finished. Yeah, a little bit sweeter smell to it. Nice. And then after that, you're starting to smell for things that you're looking for in your final cup of coffee, which is a little bit more specific. And that's kind of a little bit more where the roasters kind of keep their techniques in their pocket. They don't really share that aspect of it. However, in the roasting community, it's a pretty family-based community. I mean, up until a certain point where the recipe the blends, sure. the, the numbers of where you are and your and how what temperatures you're using in time and air. That all kind of stuff is a little bit more secretive. I don't even know why, but it is. But I think a lot of it comes down to just good. And if you have good coffee, you don't want everyone to have goods because then your people would go somewhere else. Right. So I wanted to come here. So I'm like, hey, I better keep that to myself. Well, but I'm not a stickler towards that. I just, yeah, I'm, yeah. Like I said, I'm still learning. So... Uh, <laughs> And then once it's done and you've decided, you drop it into the cooling tray, it cools. You want it to cool down pretty quick. One of the first guys that helped me on this machine is Brent Kennedy. And the Kennedy brothers own San Franciscan, which is out of Carson City, Nevada. One of the things I remember from what he said, all you don't want to burn it and you don't want to bake it. Those are the two things you don't want to do. Right. And that stuck with me because as a early on in, in roasting, I had to figure out what that really meant. And I do know what that means now because baking it is not good at the end game and burning it's obviously not good either. So, um, and there's subtleties to that as well. So, We also took a food journey from Iran to Italy. Here in episode 88, Sagar Satare explains what threads these two countries through the story of the eggplant. The eggplant story is a very good story. Um, so um, the thing is that, you know, there is no specific connection between Iran and Italy per se. I mean, let's say as two modern countries right now, right. food-wise. Um, but there is a series of different um, common threads and connections between the region, because there's also a map in the book, right, in the introduction. And um, if you look at that map, you see that we are not talking about a huge ter territory, which was also my point. So I, I dig out these similarities, uh, which are, you know, very fascinating for from a culinary point of view, or um, even maybe from historical point of view. But my purpose for doing that was to show that you know, if our food is so different, it's so similar, then our people cannot be that different. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this was my whole point. And I, I'd, I'd like to, you know, point this out because 
while there are many, many source books and many interesting things that show these sort of similarities, this is still not a sort of a um, of an academic research. Mm -hmm. So I want to point that out that, you know, I'm not saying, oh, the food of Iran and the food of Italy are very similar. No, it's not like that. <laughs> but there are um, things that are similar between them and not just between them, also between the, the terroir around them, mm -hmm. because food does not recognize borders. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's yeah. not that, you know, the, the border of Iran ends right. uh, and then that food stops being made or that exactly. ingredient stops being. Uh, and so this this is about the same thing about this whole region. So the eggplant story is that um, it looks like the eggplant was arrived from the East. So um, China and India, sometime to Asian Persia. We don't have, uh, unfortunately, no um, cooking manuscripts are left from ancient Persia. So we don't know exactly what the dishes were, but we can guess. Okay. Um, because after uh, ancient Persia was conquered by the Arabs um, and they set out first the Umavid and then the Abbasid Empire, they um, started keeping a record of uh, some of the recipes. And, you know, the, they had some manuscripts of what was happening in the kitchens of the court. Okay. And um, that's very interesting because you can see that a lot of those recipes were actually ancient Persian recipes. You can actually tell from the word or the, you know, people who have worked on these things, they tell you that this is an Arabized word of such and such Persian word. And so here we're talking about the eighth, ninth century. So we're talking about the Middle Ages. Um, and the first things that you find about the eggplant is that, um, well, in, in general, medieval physicians on, um, you know, both in, in, in Europe and in the Middle East, and I believe further beyond, they were all very wary of raw fruit and vegetable. They said it was bad for you. They said it could make you sick. It could be poisonous. So basically you were advised against having uh, fruit and vegetables, especially raw ones, like never at all. And among these, the eggplant was, um, did, got a very, very bad rap because it looked like another uh, plant that was actually poisonous. And they thought that the eggplant was poisonous and um, they hated the bitter water. And, you know, I should say this here, I remember that even when I was little or even when I was still in Iran, I remembered eggplant as being bitter, although we had that whole process of, you know, salting the eggplant and letting its uh, bitter water go. But here in Italy, honestly, you don't even need to do that anymore because the eggplants are sweet. So this, these are, um, you know, genetic and evolutionary things that yeah. have happened in, in these centuries. So... Um, anyway, and there were all of these things that you should not eat the eggplants. And there are a couple of, uh, but when you read these historical um, books on medieval Arab cookery, um, there is, for example, this one episode that uh, one person, this is one of the oldest ones, uh, one person says that, um, I know that some people like the eggplant, um, but I cannot. And even if... Um, uh, Maria, the mother of Jesus, washed it, and then some other biblical woman caught it, and Fatima, the daughter of the prophet, cooked it, I would still have no taste for it. <laughs> so it, it's such a hilarious account that this yeah. guy lists a series of religious women 
uh, like like imagine there were sort of celebrities back then yeah, yeah. Uh, and then if if all of these women handle this eggplant in one way or another he would still uh, not eat it and then a little time passes i would say perhaps a century or so uh -huh. um, and you can see already the taste of people changes um and another person is we're a moorish person so we're still in the arab world um and he says that uh i know that the doctor bans me from um eating the eggplant because he says it's bad for me but uh i love it and i can't help myself and even it's bitter water is like the saliva of the beloved during a kiss actually written wow then so this was you know in the middle east then what happens the arabs at, around i believe 10th 11th century they conquer the south of europe okay and th they bring a lot of things with themselves they bring sugar they bring rice they bring they bring citrus uh they bring lots of spices and they bring the eggplants and um, south of Europe, the reaction was the same. And, you know, by this time, the eggplant was integrated completely to the, to the um, cuisine of the um, Arab court. Okay? okay. Okay. But the Europeans would not eat it. <laughs> they had the exact same reaction that this is bad for you. This is poisonous. Oh, these foreigners, they have brought these things and they would not eat it. Okay. And it's very fun because, and they would discard it. Okay. Ah. So what is discarded in a Catholic society? What happens to it? Jews gets it. Oh. So that's why there are so many eggplant dishes in the Jewish cuisine of both Italy and uh, Spain. And many, um, many Italian dishes with eggplants that now we, we, we love, like parmigiana, caponata, and other things. Yep. You know, frying eggplants. They're all Jewish dishes oh. that were later, um, you know, um, integrated into the more global Italian cuisine, which is something that really doesn't exist. And, you know, it's very interesting. And the same fate happened to, to the artichokes. Artichokes would grow and, you know, the, the Jewish uh, community was, you know, uh, in, in this very restricted condition and they would eat whatever they had so the artichokes they grew they grew in the field they would eat them they would fry them until even mid-20th century here in the ghetto in rome they didn't have uh they couldn't have um kitchens in their homes because it was you know so wow. it, it, they were so poorly built they were constantly in the um risk of getting um you know fire yeah. Um, same thing in, in Naples where, where they fried pizza. This wasn't for Jewish community alone, but in, in Naples also for everyone. They were so poor. These buildings were built badly, so they yeah. couldn't afford to have kitchens. So they would fry them. They would have these huge fryers in the street and they would fry everything. That's why we have fried pizza in Naples and a lot of fried artichokes in Rome. We also explored how scent can be used to convey particular messages. Here in episode 89 with Christina Bradstreet, we get a historical perspective of how smell was used in art in the late 1800s. In the 1850s, smell really was associated with fear. Um, and I think it's maybe only because of COVID that we can have a sense of understanding of that, of this kind of idea of fear of, of something invisible around you. True. So in, I think it was 1848, 
Edward Chadwick, who was the public health officer in England, said that all smell is disease. So not just stench, but perfume too. So there was this real desire to see smell and visualize it. And if you could do that, you, then you could control it. So in science, you see a kind of desire to try and work out how you could see smell under the microscope, or could you map it? Could you imagine it like sound waves, um, kind of smell waves? Could you find a way to see it and then control it? By the 1890s, the fear of smell has abated in many ways because people no longer believed in miasma theory, the idea that all smell is disease. It had been replaced by germ theory as the way in which disease is transmitted. So that kind of real fear of smell isn't there anymore, but still the kind of association with smell as something a bit dangerous lingers on and it still has that kind of hint of something thrilling and potentially dangerous but that could by that time spark the imagination in, in exciting ways it was kind of more more thrilling I guess and <laughs> from so fear to of, thrill <laughs> yeah, yeah so like in um, Bram Stoker's Dracula um, the miasma of his lair right um, um, and in my conclusion I compare and contrast two images one from the 1850s and one from 1912 both of which imagine smell under the microscope one is an image from a punch cast a drop of miasmic Thames water and in it you see all these kind of little bodies of demons and ghouls and monsters and then the image from 1912 is a leak perfume bottle in it's a circular bottle and it looks like you're looking through a magnifying glass into the frosted glass of the bottle and you're seeing these fairies which are an embodiment of the coaty scent so you yeah there's kind of desire to see smell but it becomes something more beautiful and poetic and um, and kind of spiritual or um yeah. yeah, just before the First World War. And then, as I say, I think that kind of um, the First World War ex accelerates modernist sensibilities and, and all of that seems rather archaic and spiritual compared to the realities of a war. Using scent to tell stories is something gaining popularity these days as well. Here in episode 91, Liam Finley shares some fun examples of how he uses scent to dimensionalize theme park experiences. I have a very nice example from Disneyland, and there are countless kind of tricks that you can use with smells, but this is just a nice example that illustrates how smells can be used in interesting ways. And the example I'd like to give is at the Snow White ride, which has an apple smell. And it seems a kind of a very basic and unimaginative use of smell that Snow White would have an apple smell. But you go past scenes on a cart and the first scene that gets center is the Seven Dwarfs Cottage and everyone's having a party. And that's where you can smell the apples and um, you can see the kind of warm woody colours, which kind of uh, I would imagine contributes to people's reactions to that smell. And it, especially in rides, first impressions are very important. So having that immediate positive feeling is good. And the apple smell is also very widely recognisable, so all sorts of international guests will recognise it, unlike some smells that can have different reactions from different people around the world. 
So there's that element. But then in the ride, you leave that first scene where there's all the happy dancing and the apple smell. And immediately when you turn the corner, you're in the dark forest where the witch is at the door and she's got the poisoned apple. Your emotional reaction is switched on its head somewhat that you've been having this very positive reaction to the apple smell. But then you see the poisoned apple, which you know is going to kill Snow White. So the the smell has a whole different meaning. And it's, it's a nice way to play with people's emotions. That instance reminds me of the child catcher in Chitty Bang, having yeah. lollies. And then you realize his cart is a cage. And that's another, even though they're very contrasting examples, that same kind of approach is used in scare mazes at Halloween. So they might use a pleasant smell to create a false sense of security. But then you'll realize that smells coming from rotting bodies or something. And it plays with your emotions a lot. So the, even if it's something as simple and something that seems so unimaginative as a smell of apples, uh, you can play with it in terms of how the other visuals come into play and the other elements of the experience to tell a story in an interesting way. <laughs> oh, it's, it's brilliant. It's so brilliant. I love it. And I want to hear some more, actually, because you do things for both theme parks and museum. So let's just continue on the, the theme parks area a little bit more. Can you give us some other fun examples of things you've done? Yeah. So one of the things that we've been doing a lot recently with British theme parks, because we've been working with them for so many decades now, there's lots of bringing back old smells that guests have nostalgic memories with. Oh. So smells that were discontinued or the rides closed like 10 years ago or 20 yeah. years ago. But you'll have people that have very personal memories of them. And one example of that is the Vampire Roller Coaster at Chessington World of Adventures, which I believe was the first ever roller coaster to have an artificial smell used to enhance the storytelling. The loading station is like an old vampire's crypt and there's a vampire playing the organ and it's got a very dirty kind of old damp smell. And that smell was removed, but in 2020, the smell was brought back. And we've done that similarly with another ride, a kind of alien ride at Alton Towers. We made a custom alien egg nest smell that we've brought back. And that's very popular, particularly in this age. Maybe it's coincidental, but in this age when we've got all these sort of movies and things, I suppose yeah. this might be the smell equivalent appealing to that nostalgia in terms you know, of you, entertainment. Yeah, you say that because our world is moving so quickly. I live here in Silicon Valley and all anybody talks about is AI. And obviously mm. the world is starting to think, oh my gosh, we're really moving into a new age, this and that. And it's, you're more going virtually or non-human things. I feel like there's a lot of nostalgia and, and the need for having physical, real experiences because our world is moving so quickly into a new age, right? Yeah. And it's nice to be involved in that. It's nice to be involved in something that can only be experienced physically, which I suppose might contribute to that personal connection that we have with smells. But what about those situations when you don't have access to your sense of smell? You know, to help you get really rich experiences. Well, in episode 92, I talked to Katie Boateng, who's lost her sense of smell. I help her to connect with everyday smells in new ways. In this case, when taking a shower and shampooing her hair. I begin by asking her how 
it feels to take a shower these days. Yeah, I don't know if I have a feeling associated with it. Okay. More of a time to think about my to-do list. <laughs> yeah. Productive, maybe? Yeah. 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 Productive. That's good. Do you have any memory of the olfactory experience of taking a shower? I think it's similar to all of my memories okay. of olfaction is that it's very, it's there and I can sort of think about how it made me feel, but I couldn't, I can't relive it in my head. I have memories of bubble baths when I was little or smelly soaps and shampoos and stuff and enjoying them. But no, I don't think, I don't have a very vivid memory of those things anymore. Okay. So I'm curious to know what this part I'm super curious for. So can you describe the smell of the shampoo that I sent you using non-smell words to enhance the imagery of the experience? So I use Redken Volume Injection Shampoo and Conditioner. It's in a pink bottle. Okay. So I went to the store to smell this since I, you know, I'm not going to go out and buy every single product, (laughs) but I went to the store. So I didn't experience in the shower, but Just to give you a little background, so when I worked at Fragrance House for 10 years, my categories that I worked on were shampoo, so the hair care market, and the deodorant market. Nice. So that was very helpful here today, (laughs) because at least I can get, I I know enough to know how the difference is. Like when we went, a lot of people decide on what shampoo they're going to use, not only what it says on the bottle or maybe the color of it, but also they might open the cap and smell it and that's Mm -hmm. called smelling it neat out of the bottle so that's what I was doing at the store and then obviously when you use it in the shower in combination with water and only a little bit that's in bloom so that's what I will try to describe based on what I smelled neat oh that's fascinating okay cool (laughs) okay so here we go so for me that redkin shampoo smelled very sweet creamy but it was a kind of creamy that was more of a whipped cream, like as if you would feel it in your mouth, like whipped cream. Interesting. Um, and it smells a little matte, so it's not shiny. Like if you, if you have a photo, you know, it's more of a matte um, look. It's very, it's bright. It could be the color pink, just like the bottle, it, interestingly mm-hmm. enough. So I made that association. And thin. So it's a thin smell. And it smelled slightly far away because it was thinner. So it's not a very in-your-face kind of smell. Um, And it has a cooing sound. (laughs) It's very delicate. And it has a powdery feel. So as if you were to take talcum powder and touch it. Yeah. It has a powdery feel to it. And it was slightly cool in temperature. And the temperament, I always like to give it a personality. It was cheerful. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Does that give you a little context? That's great. Yeah. I think yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Those are some words uh, I can think of. So a person who could, like in the fragrance industry, when I was, you know, working on these things, we would simply describe it as a very feminine floral rose. And that doesn't mean anything to you. Right. Right. So that was my point is to try to get away from these common fragrance terms that we use, which yeah. is just floral rose, like what would you do with that expression? So I'm trying to use all the other senses to bring more context and dimension. So that's wonderful. Then of course, in episode 87, 
I had a great conversation with World Taste and Smell Association founders Stephanie Foyer and Mindy Yang, who shared why it's so important to elevate taste and smell. So this global consortium started. Yes. Um, and then they started, as you mentioned, doing a you know a variety of research specifically into smell loss and COVID, which was amazing. Yes. During that period of time, one of the Chinese ENTs, Xinxiao uh, Chen, said, how come there's not a world, a, a day devoted to smell? Um, there's, you know, Kidney Day and Mother's Day, and why not? And Jennifer Trackman from um, the Monell Center took it on as, as a project to, to convene a group of people, um, both from the GCCR and then um, people like Mindy, who have broad industry contact and experience and other innovators as well, um, to create a founding group. And then we have evolved into creating this World Taste and Smell Day on September 14th as a day where we want to elevate the awareness of the importance of our senses of smell and taste um, and support all the people who are working in the area, innovators and, and the scientists, and really also the people who are suffering from taste differences. It's not just viral. I mean, people who are going through chemo um, treatment yes. lose their taste. There are congenital reasons why people don't taste or um, developmental reasons. I've, I've done a, a number of things that relate to Alzheimer's and yes. uh, dementia and, and smell loss and Parkinson's as well as one of one of the areas. And people even who have um, rhinositis and allergies experience um, smell and taste loss. So we really want to support all these people and bring them together and be kind of an umbrella group um, that just elevates the importance of, of taste and smell. Wonderful. So you decided to found the organization because you felt there wasn't something like that out there, right? Yes, exactly. Coming from a different perspective, right? And um, I've noticed we, we do have International Fragrance Day, for instance, we also, but those, those events and days are very focused around commercialism. It's about selling yes. fragrances and talking about new brands and trends and, and, you know, helping companies sell more. So one of the things that I, I have realized as, you know, I'm working with all the scientists and Stephanie is a wealth of information and kind of like the conduit and liaison between all of those amazing researchers happening we realize that there are a lot of patient organization support groups. There are many, many people in the trade world that never really declare themselves to have any kind of compromised sense of smell, even during COVID, because it's kind of detrimental to your career if all of a sudden a perfumer comes out and say, um, I can't smell or an yes. evaluate, right? So, and in for, you know, I, I work in the intersection of hospitality and, and fragrance and to food, um, food, wine, and also not, and perfume and beauty and all this other stuff. So, you know, it's actually a huge fear that nobody gets to talk about. So we feel like there's an important, um, safe place that needs to get established where we can serve as like the gathering place, but also the bridge and also just just um, a place where everybody can come out and start to have this conversation together so that they can kind of continue on the adventure and kind of choose their own adventure too. 
I'll finish with the most recent episode, episode 94, where Rahel Ali so beautifully shares the experience of burning oud and smelling its many surprising facets. Truly something not to be missed. To start off with, it is a polarizing aroma. You know, there is this common theme amongst most influencers and fragrance reviewers that oud is this kind of real animalic barnyard kind of smell now yes there is an element of truth there because ultimately it's it's a fungal infection so it does have this kind of animalic but not as the way they describe it because most of the the reviews that you hear and you see on youtube uh, and when you read about is really targeted at the oils and vast majority of oils aren't really distilled in, in the manner that they should be distilled. And also the, the wood in itself is also different. You know, what's really used more in, in the Middle East is the wood chip as opposed to the oil. There is like 150 different components, uh, elements in this oil that really, you know, is, is something that is super unique and is not found in any other material. So I'll give you an example. The way it's predominantly used in the Middle East is on charcoal. So you get the wood chip and, you know, normally they place it on a charcoal, which it burns at around about temperature, about 1,000 to 1,200 degrees Celsius, right? Now, in that process, you get the most incredible divine aroma that comes from it. But it's, it's really short-lived. It's really short-lived. And this is what was going to be my next up-and-coming video, really, is how to smell oud. I know as, as ridiculous as it sounds, there is a way to actually smell it. And most people miss that moment, that window of really experiencing the true beauty of burning oud, which is the very first few seconds, I would say within the first five to ten seconds, maybe. It, it all depends on the grade, you know? But, and also... It, you know, the, the burner should be relatively close to you. And this is where most of the people go wrong there as well. So the aroma that you'll get from these wood chips is just, it's actually really hard to describe. And it, it takes someone like myself years to understand it because there's just so many different notes that you'll find in there. I mean, I remember making a video where I tried to explain and go down the list of aromas that can be found in it. And boy was that a mistake because the amount of keyboard warriors that i got just hating on me was just incredible you know so but it's all there i, I mean i can list a few you know obviously animalic notes leather notes the floral notes fruity notes tobacco notes tea notes orange notes dry fruit notes you can even get cola notes uh, believe it or not some um, malaysian oils they, they have this really cola note and even melon notes I mean, I've experienced so many different aromas within this, like, really single-source ingredient. This is what's really mind-blowing. And, you know, to really enjoy and appreciate oud, you really have to kind of empty your mind of all the other kind of stuff that we've all smelt and just try to see it, you know, in that kind of light, as in, like, this is the... There's nothing like it. No other material is produced where it has that kind of top note middle note and base note and that kind of therapeutic aspect to this aroma that is in my opinion not found in anything else you know nothing is comparable so yeah 
Thank you for joining me on An Aromatic Life. If you're interested in learning more about your sense of smell from all different perspectives, subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends too. And it would be really helpful if you could rate the podcast so it helps others find it too. I also invite you to check out my website, smellgym.com, where you can take online classes to exercise your sense of smell for health and well-being. And while you're there, be sure to grab the free guide to help you elevate your smell health with everyday items in your home. Until next time, remember to smell everything and have a wonderful day.